Our scripture today is in Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Thank you, Brecken. And uh, my name's Tim. Good to be pastor here, and it is so good to be together. Um, I'm going to lower this just a little bit. I, I don't know if uh, how many people are feeling a little... Uh, worn out, or it's almost like running on, kind of like, have a great day yesterday, so many amazing things happened, and if you miss Collins Days yesterday, don't miss it next year. Uh, it's just been a lot of fun things that were happening there, and just a joy to enjoy together each other. And uh, many of you, Dave, you've kind of carried that baton for a long time, and uh, as we even talked about Collins Days, and like, man, is it, should you go all in for Collins Days, you know? And it's like, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the joy that we have felt in being set free from our sins and having Him uh, say, follow me, and the life that we get following Him. And then if our community is like, hey, should we come together and celebrate something and celebrate just being a community together? I think those who experience the life that Jesus brings us um, in some ways should be at the front, the tip of the spear in saying there is so much to be joyful about, so much to, to thrive in together as a community out of the overflow of the life that Jesus gives us. And so, man, it, it can be really tiring to follow Jesus into that, but then also uh, just hearing the, the joy that people were feeling just to, to be able to step in the things that we did yesterday, uh, I thought was really good. And then I learned that 41 pounds of candy is not quite enough on a parade float. It's close, but next year we're, we're going to go the 50-pound mark, I think, and just and not have to tell. just feels wrong to tell a kid, like, throttle down the candy throwing, like, you know, RPMs. Like, like we need to bring it down a level, you know, because uh, they were really getting after it. And I just want to be like, throw as much as you can, you know, and just go, go that way. And uh, I, it made me think about Buddy the Elf in the, the, the movie Elf, you know, when, uh, when he hears that Santa is coming to the mall, and he's like, Santa's coming, you know? And he's like so excited. I feel that way about a parade. I, I do, because I grew up in Collins. I mean, there, I was looking at pictures of me on my bicycle when I was eight years old, and, and the parade float for me was putting streamers on my bicycle, you know? And then I just rode that through town, you know, and, uh, and waved if I, if I was advanced enough to, you know, ride and wave. And it was interesting because we, uh, several years ago, moved to Oklahoma City to be a pastor of a church there. And in Oklahoma City, the, the city that we lived in, the suburb, so there's about a million people in Oklahoma City, and the northern suburb was almost like a carbon copy of Ankeny. 
like just very similar to Ankeny, actually a little bit more wealthy than Ankeny. We had a bunch of NBA players who played for the Thunder, like West, uh, Russell Westbrook lived in our, the same city as us for a while and stuff, and there would be sightings of him throughout town, you know, where you'd be at a, at a breakfast place and see him and, and different gigantic basketball players and all this stuff. But one of the things about Edmond, Oklahoma, was that it was ranked as one of the best parades in the country. One of the best 4th of July parades in the country. And so I got fired up. I was like, what favor has befallen us that we happen to live in a city with one of the best parades in the country? And as I took the kid, and the kids hadn't grown up around Collins Day's parades. My wife grew up in Orlando, Florida area, you know, not a lot of parade territory going on there in the way that it is here. And I was sitting at the Edmond, Oklahoma parade, and it lasted for over an hour. There was like all sorts of, you know, more bands than you could count, nor more fire trucks than you can count, you know, whole groups of horse, people on horses riding by and all this stuff. And it felt like a fraud to me because not one piece of candy was allowed to be thrown out. Not one piece, because who knows who would be throwing unsolicited candy. So how could we possibly, in a parade route where there's over 100,000 people, how could we imagine putting such harm in the way of our kids by throwing them candy that's unsolicited? No candy involved, you know? And so as we sat in this parade, I felt like Buddy the Elf when, he, when Santa comes and he's like, you're not Santa, you know? And so my kids are sitting there and I, I feel like saying to them, guys, this is not a parade. This is, this is not a parade. This is a, this is a false moment, you know? Because my kids, we were there for several years. They got to where I couldn't even beg them to go to the parade because it was so boring because they were spectators of people driving by in front of them. They were spectators, but they weren't participants. And I think what makes like the Collins Day Parade and what makes Collins Day so fun and amazing is because we're participants in it and we're doing what, what we want to do, you know, which is like throw poundage of candy and all of that stuff and the joy of even if you aren't on a float, you're a part of it all and, and the, just the joy of all that and moving from being a spectator of something to actually being a participant of it and being in the mix of it all. And... Um, and just like the joy, the, the knowing and being known and all of that stuff that we experienced just in, in a flash yesterday and seeing kind of like a shadow of what I think is so amazing about following Jesus is because he doesn't call any of us to be spectators. And when you're a spectator of something that's even ranked as a country high thing, a lot of times it's like not life-giving. But if you're, a, you're, if you're in the middle of it and you're, you're a participant of it, and what that might look like is, is life-giving. And so what does it look like in our relationship with Jesus? What does it look like in a relationship with God to be a participant and not a spectator? And what does that look like from our perspective? But then what does that look like from his perspective? Like what is he showing us? Because we don't have to be... Sherlock Holmes to be able to detect the most, you know, subtle nuance to be able to find our way to God. 
like as, as Kevin uh, shared that from Jeremiah and as I prayed into that, is like God is not playing hide-and-go-seek. He has put a well-lit path in front of us, a, a runway that's well-lit to say, follow me, and this is what it looks like, and, and what it looks like for us to actually follow him and not just kind of be far away spectators. So, so where we're going to see all this come out is in Matthew chapter 9, and to learn some like foundational key things about the heart of God that will hopefully change our hearts and change the way we view each other, change the way we view our community and our heart. And I know the heart of many of us that have prayed for a long time, and it's just an honor to have Carol and other people that I know have prayed for decades for Jesus to be on the move in this community. And it's amazing that he's on the move at the Collins Christian Church. He's on the move here. And would he be on the move as we're together today? And those who aren't a part of one of those churches, our prayers that you would be coming out of this if God would, could, would lead you that way uh, through, through what he's going to do this morning. So we're in Matthew chapter 9. We have some Bibles on the Connect table. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen. You're more than welcome to pull out your phone as well and follow along. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 reads this. As Jesus passed on from there, from where he was, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He's in Jerusalem. And he says to him, Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Just an amazing thing about Scripture is you can mine the words of Scripture. You know, you could mine down the words of Scripture and have treasures come up over and over and over again. And even verses that share very few details details start coming to the surface, and, and we start seeing more and more and more. And just in these few words in verse 9 are scandalous. It's scandalous that Jesus would even look in the direction of someone as sinful as Matthew. Matthew is at work, and he runs into Jesus. Matthew is sitting in a tax booth, sitting in his office. There's a window there. He's sitting in his office, and he's a tax collector. Tax collectors don't have a great reputation now. I think we'd all agree. A tax collector, and if you are a tax collector here, you'd probably agree too. <laughs> tax collectors don't have a great reputation in our community now. If you work for the IRS, that's usually the end of a conversation. You know, it's like you're hanging out with somebody. Hey, where do you work for the IRS? All right, I'll go find somebody else to talk to, right? Um, way worse during the time of Jesus. A tax collector reputation was far worse for many reasons in first century Israel. So first, a tax collector was typically Jewish because you need to have, if you live in Israel, you have to have enough insight into how Jewish people make money so that like, it would be like being a tax collector here and having no idea how agriculture works having no idea how a lot of things work. And it's like, if they're like, hey, I make this. And it's like, okay. But if it's like, no, I actually know you. I know how you make money. You got to pay up. More taxes, okay? So what a tax collector, they're typically Jewish because they would understand the people because they're their people. But then also, they were considered to be an absolute sellout to their people. So they had to be Jewish to be good at their jobs 
But to be good at their jobs, they had to stab all the Jewish people in the back and be sellouts. And this is how they would do it. And this is how they became incredibly wealthy, is that a tax collector would come up to you and be like, Brandon, you owe me a thousand bucks. I've looked at all your stuff, you owe me a thousand bucks. And Brandon might be like, uh, and it'd say, okay, well, here are your options. You give me a thousand dollars or I'm gonna make you a slave or I'm gonna beat you and then make you a slave. I'm going to uh, take all your property and just say, okay, you paid it in all of your agricultural things, I just took them, or I'm gonna throw you into prison, okay? So that, that was like the options. There wasn't like an appeals court or anything like that. If the tax collector levied a decision, you had to go with that decision. So Brandon would scrounge together, beg, borrow, all that stuff, get $1,000, go up to the tax collector and be like, okay, I need to stay alive, I need to keep, keep working, I need to keep feeding my family, here's $1,000. The tax collector would take the $1,000 and then would go to the next people up in the Roman Empire and say, I collected Brandon's taxes, here's $500. And then would take the other 500 and keep it. And Brandon couldn't be like, hey, I'm telling on you. You know, like there was no recourse there. And everybody hated the tax collectors because they were filling their bank accounts on the backs of people who couldn't afford it. And in addition to that, there was nothing you could do about it and you're like related to each other. And all of that was happening, which is why people hated tax collectors. They are filthy rich. And I, I spent several years ago, I was in Kenya and I was on a trip with an incredible group called Compassion International and they were taking us through all of these like really poor communities in Kenya and that we were with the Maasai warriors, that they are the ones that are known for jumping up and down. They're also known that you don't take their picture or because they believe it steals their soul. So, you know, we were navigating all of that reality. I actually have a picture of me jumping as high as I can next to a Maasai warrior who's like two feet taller than me in the air, even though they were this tall as we were standing next to each other. And, um, and so we were around the Maasai warriors, all these people, fascinating group of people, incredible poverty. And then there was a middle-class house just boom, right there. It looked like straight out of some street in America. Nice house. No other houses looked that way. And I, I, we, were bound, we were driving in the vehicle like down this gravel road, and I was like, who lives there? And they're like, oh, that's the tax collector. And I was like, are you kidding me? We need to burn that house down. Like that thing, is it not obvious to everybody? And they're like, it is. Look, I mean, it's obvious what they're doing and you can't do anything about it. You know, that's, that's who they are. So even today, people experience things like this. So for Jesus to go up to a tax collector is like, oh, he is going to pulverize him. He is going to give him what he deserves. And this is gonna be like a bloodbath. I mean, I can't wait to see what Jesus is going to do to this tax collector. And he goes up to him and says, follow me. Oh, gosh, are you, are you serious? Isn't justice supposed to be served? Isn't Jesus going to turn the world upside down? Isn't Jesus going to make things right? And he just asks the tax collector to follow him. 
And there was something about Jesus, and I know many of you in this room have already experienced this firsthand. Um, Some of you might experience this for the first time today. But when Jesus asks you to follow him, when Jesus called Matthew to say, hey, everything that defines you right now, everything that's bringing you wealth like no one else around you is getting right now, um, follow me without any like, oh, and you can still, or no, just follow me, two words. And we're simply told, look what Jesus said to him, follow me. He arose and followed him. That's what we see. He arose and followed him. We get no super detailed backstory. What was the inner dialogue that he was thinking about? It was the, when Jesus calls somebody like that, all right, here we go. I'm, I'm following him. It's scandalous that Jesus, look at verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house of Matthew, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is scandalous upon scandalous, is that Jesus would be in Matthew's house, which was paid for out of, by injustice. He would be inside of a house that was blood money paid for, and he is relaxing with Matthew. You know, everybody's not sitting on pins and needles like, oh gosh, oh gosh, oh gosh, you know, but to actually like, it's nice just hanging out with Jesus here. They're enjoying being there, and then there's not a few, but look at this, many tax collectors and sinners have come. Not some, but many. So there's, there's this whole motley crew of the worst of the worst, and they're hanging with Jesus and Jesus' disciples. So Jesus has already formed the attitudes of his disciples where they're all relaxing together in the living room of Matthew's house. The most notorious sinners of the community, Jesus and his disciples. Simon the Zealot was possibly there who would have loved to take out any of these tax collectors. They aren't being condemned by Jesus. They're relaxing in his presence. Tells us this in John 3, 17. I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. And then as one man received the scandalous grace of Jesus, this scandalous grace is now spreading throughout the community, all of Matthew's friends. And think about it, they don't have text message threads, they don't have cell phones. Someone actually had to go physically and be like, hey, tell Frank to get here, hey, tell James to get here, like whoever those people's names were, people had to go and get all these like, you guys got to come to Matthew's house and meet this guy. The light of the world is surrounding himself with people living in darkness. And he's getting ready to shine. You know, he's like, I'm the light of the world. Get people living in darkness all around me, man. I'm going I'm to shine. I'm going to light this place up. He's getting away, ready to shine away their darkness, to purify a people for himself. The disciples don't feel the pressure to make sure the sinners know their place. You can come in the door when you've done this much penance to show that you're really worthy of forgiveness, you know? There's none of that. There's none of any 
people needing to know their place. There's no penance needed here. The disciples are basking in the same scandalous grace that Jesus is offering to the tax collectors and sinners. So that we're at the end of verse 10, and now verse 11. And man, this, I feel this in my own heart. I feel this, this has been my experience of, of the observation too, walking with Jesus now since 1997, is a lot of times when you've experienced the radical grace of Jesus in a room, I'd call that a verse 10 experience. Verse 11 typically threatens to destroy verse 10. Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of the day. In order to become a Pharisee, some, some scholars believe that you had to have the entire Old Testament memorized. The Apostle Paul, we see how brilliant he is. I mean, the book of Romans is one of the most magisterial books written any time in the ancient world. Brilliant man who was a Pharisee. So these people are brilliant. They know their Bibles as they existed at that time. They're a religious elite. And they have it in their minds that if Jesus really was God, which it seems like that's what he's saying, if Jesus was really God, he would be too holy to be around these dirty people. I know that sounds rough, but I think the Pharisees might choose harsher words. Religious talk, but they would choose harsher words. And I've even heard this, even talking around students at the well and, and other people, is this statement that God can't be around sin. God just can't be in the presence of sin. Well, let's be crystal clear here. If Jesus can't be around sin, he can't be in this room. He can't be close to me because, yeah, Jesus is changing me, but I'm not home yet. I, I still have the flesh. I, I still sin. I still suffer. You know, I, I love this. There's a new book out that talks about every Christian is a saint, a sufferer, and a sinner. And those things are all happening simultaneously and are all equally true. And I think we think too small of Jesus if we discourage him from being in the home of one of the most notorious of sinners. We got this little baby Jesus, like, oh, he's too fragile for that. He's, he's too, too much of a little Jesus to be in such a, a place of big sinners. But, you know, that says more about us. It says more about our view of Jesus than it says about Jesus. We also know that he's king of all kings. We also know that he is the creator of heaven and earth. We, we know that weather systems obey him instantly and don't even work themselves out. They just, he has full obedience. We know that demons only tremble when Jesus is a part of the conversation. They're not afraid of us, they're afraid of him. His relationship to sin, Jesus' relationship to sinners, it's far deeper more ferocious than anything that we can know about. So it's scandalous what Jesus says in verses 12 through 13. And man, I really hope that these words will be like seeds that find themselves planted in good soil, that we'd, we'd have ears to hear this morning what he's saying to us. Verse 12, 
But when he heard this, when Jesus heard this talk, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. So the Pharisees are trying to school Jesus, and Jesus is like, hey, I'll give you a verse to look up. Go and learn what this means from Hosea chapter 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is here for the sick. If we were all good people, then Jesus could have just been like, oh, 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 I can just stay in heaven. This is amazing. You guys are so good. You're killing it. Good job. That's not who we are. The rebellion of Adam and Eve runs deep through our veins, causing our rebellion. We're soul sick. Jesus quotes to people who had most of the Old Testament memorized, he quotes the book of Hosea. Hosea is this powerful book where God, and it, it sounds crass, but it's raw, um, and which the hope is it gets really into us, is um, he basically says, when I see you guys doing church, I want to throw up in my mouth. Because you're doing all the sacrifices, and your heart is not in it. Your heart is far away and you're doing the sacrifice thing, and I'm out. Please stop doing that. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I want your heart, not your actions. Because your actions without your heart is playing at church. Your heart leading to actions is being alive in Him. And He says, don't tell them about sacrificing. Don't go up to a group of tax collectors and tell them to start sacrificing and doing penance and doing all this and pay back all the money and do all this. Don't do that. Show them mercy. Show them mercy and not sacrifice. And man, I chewed on this for a while and he says, because I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus is doing, when he says one thing, he's saying a thousand things. When he says something shallow, there's a whole Mount Everest that's behind it. And there's so much theology packed into verse 13. One of the realities that Jesus is saying here is when you see people and you want some penance to happen in their lives before they could ever go to God and saying sacrifice, he's saying, not important. Show them mercy not sacrifice. And I, man, I was praying this week, like, Lord, what does that mean? Why would you say it that way? Why would you not say it some other way? How is this clear of your heart towards all of us, clear towards our community? And man, as the reality is that Jesus is here to be the sacrifice. So when he is asking us, hey, don't, ask, don't tell them to sacrifice. I just want their heart because he's on a mission to do the sacrifice for us. His heart is actually, I'm going to pay for all of that. I am here and on my way to Jerusalem to pay for every sin that any tax collector's ever done, any sin that we've done of thought, of actions, of words. He's like, I am here. Why I have left heaven is to be the sacrifice. And man, this is scandalous grace. And I hope we spend a lifetime walking in this together and just kind of a three, three points as we're looking like, how do I 
how do I live this out? What does this mean for me personally? First is, would, would each of us, would we each receive scandalous grace? Because if you're like, well, I just need to get what I deserve. Man, you're going to spend a lifetime on a hamster wheel, never know if you've paid enough, done enough penance, done enough sacrifice. And at the end of that hamster wheel, you're going to be really tired. You're not going to know. And Jesus is saying, you're pushing against everything that I've done for you. The whole reason I'm here is to get you off the hamster wheel, get you on your knees, trusting me because I am your sacrifice. And each of us, he did that for each of us. And each of us respond, receiving his scandalous grace, receiving his forgiveness. And it allows us, this might sound strange, it's in scripture, we'll go to it in a second. It allows us to reign in this life if we receive his scandalous grace. We aren't just people who are crawling through this life, but by God's eyes, we're reigning in life. Romans 5.17. We'll have it up here if you don't, you could turn to it. You could write a little note, text yourself. Romans 5.17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So he's saying because of Adam, death is reigning. Every human being, even Alexander the Great, who conquered everything, couldn't beat death. Death has reigned. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. By us receiving his abundance of grace, and you receive it, you don't pay for it, right? It's a gift. So by us receiving the abundance of his grace, that he is wanting to give us what we don't deserve. And the free gift, we're staying on the gift theme, the free gift of righteousness. So if we receive his grace and the free gift of his righteousness, and this rocked Martin Luther's world in 1517, was this idea. He had spent all of, this, all of these years saying, Jesus, forgive me, forgive me. I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to do it the right way. I'm trying to honor you. I'm trying to, he would whip himself and do all sorts of things. And he would confess his sins for hours at a time, would leave and then be like, oh, I just thought of one more thing. It would go back. It was trying to do all these things to get right with God. And when God opened his eyes to Romans 1.17, but then also we see it here, is that receiving the abundance of grace is a gift. But look, so is also the free gift of righteousness. And what this means is that when we come to Jesus, when we give our lives to him, Jason Celo gives his life to Jesus. It's like, okay, I'll take your sin. Thank you. Here is all of my righteousness deposited in your account. So the, if, if everyone's ever like, hey, are you righteous enough to enter heaven? You'd be like, no. Are you kidding me? Me? Righteous enough to enter heaven? No. Jesus' righteousness is on me because I've put my life in Jesus' hands. I gave him my sin. He gave me his righteousness, and I'm reigning in life. I mean, life is all around me. It's his life because he's alive. I can face tomorrow because he's alive. 
I can live. And that's us. And man, we can still get fired from jobs. We can still get cancer. We can still experience immense amounts of suffering. And we are reigning in life as God transforms us more and more into people who have his righteousness. That gift allowing us to reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We're not free from Jesus. We are free now for Jesus, reigning in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So would each of us receive his scandalous grace? And then second, would each of us proclaim scandalous grace? This isn't meant to be kept here. It's not meant to be kept inside the walls of the Collins Christian Church. It's not meant to be kept inside the, the border of Collins Township. It's meant to be proclaimed as scandalous, this scandalous grace. And a beautiful person we see proclaiming this is the Samaritan woman. All the Samaritans were outcasts. Samaritans were possibly hated more than tax collectors. And this woman was cheating on all sorts of people around there. And so we have an outcast people group, the Samaritans, and they had cast this woman out of their group. So the outcasts had cast her out. So she's truly like an outcast of the outcast. And Jesus goes up there and is like, I know everything you've ever done. And she loves it. Usually if someone knows everything you've ever done and you're the outcast of the outcast, you're about ready to be shamed. You're about ready to get all sorts of stuff poured on top of you. Be like, you should be ashamed of yourself and all this stuff. She meets Jesus and he knows her, and he talks with her in a way that it's super clear that he's inviting her to follow him. Live free. And what's the first thing she does? She runs into town and be like, come here a guy who knows everything I've ever done. And probably the people in town didn't even know everything she's ever done. I mean, without Facebook, right? I mean, how could, anyway, that was cheap jab, okay? But, um, but for somebody, though, to actually know everything you've ever done and then to run into your community and say, this guy actually knows everything I've ever done, you gotta meet him. And she could have kept that for herself. She could have savored to all the people that have given her a hard time. She could have savored that personal relationship with Jesus and no one had to do an evangelism class. <laughs> uh, those aren't bad, but we see in her this, you couldn't stop her from telling everyone, you gotta meet him as well. And John 4, 39, once again, you could text it to yourself, write it down. John 4, 39 tells us, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Instead of knowing her and rejecting her, Jesus's grace towards her was absolutely scandalous. And as she experienced that, she wanted everyone to experience Jesus the same way. And man, would that be true of our community? Not that people are being invited to attend the Collins Christian Church. Not that people are being invited to attend Sacred Mission Church. Man, but people are being invited to experience the grace of Jesus, no matter who they're talking with or, or where they find themselves. Would we be people receiving scandalous grace proclaiming scandalous grace, and then third, showing scandalous grace. Would we each show scandalous grace? Because it can be, I, I, I feel this inside of me. I can say like, hey, 
I can receive that from Jesus. I can proclaim that to somebody. Um, but man, I can easily think the worst in someone that's close to me and um, snub each other, poke at each other, um, give each other the cold shoulder, give each other the stiff arm. And uh, a little later in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, they're wrestling with this. You know, the disciples were starting to actually not like each other. And it's like, man, can we just, let us just from the stage proclaim. And it's like, no, from the seats, we got to love each other. We got to show each other this scandalous grace. Um, they asked Jesus, like, when do we hit the limit when I can actually give this person a piece of my mind? Matthew 18, verse 22, Peter came up, of course, and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, which is not his way of saying on the 78th time, like, give him a piece of your mind. It's his way of saying, you'll lose count. And he can speak from personal experience. That's like, I am not counting with you. <laughs> and in my relationship with you, you're receiving grace from me because I'm giving you my righteousness, which is changing us from the inside out. And man, would that, Lord, would that make us just your people on mission here? Would we receive your scandalous grace? Lord, if you're calling someone right now to follow you, would they just like Matthew, just get up and follow you? If you're calling us to proclaim this scandalous grace from, from our teams, from our classrooms, from our cubicles, um, from our businesses, from our homes, Lord, would we be quick to proclaim this scandalous grace that is so life-giving? And Lord, the ways that you're calling us to show your scandalous grace, Lord, be merciful to us. Instruct us with the Holy Spirit, be our, our counselor. Would you empower maybe the healing of decades of wounds, maybe people that don't like each other and they can't even remember why they don't like each other? Um, Lord, would you allow that to fade away? Would you make us your light because your righteousness is on us and we are reigning in life as we follow you, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name for your glory. Amen. Amen. Jesus' idea for a way for us to move towards him, for a way for us together as we move towards each other to move towards him, he designed communion. And the, the way that we, we have been doing communion here is that we have, we typically have wine and juice. We have, we have juice today, so you don't have to obey your conscience there. You can uh, take juice and Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Uh, then uh, TJ and Kevin are putting on plastic gloves because they're actually going to serve you the bread, okay? And then the way that we're going to do this is um, come, come forward and have your, have your hands out like this. And one of these two men, and then let's all like come into the middle, and then we'll, we'll kind of go out that way just to, to have the flow be well. Um, but they'll rip off a piece of the bread and hand it to you. And as they hand it to you, and Chrissy will be leading us into a song. We'll take a little bit of time here. Um, as they're handing it to you, they're actually going to look in your eye and say, the body of Jesus given for you. 
And they're going to do that because it's true. <laughs> and it's true for every single person. So let that be a sacred moment. It's okay if you cry. It's okay if you get teary-eyed. It's okay if these guys are a puddle of tears at the end of this because it's a powerful moment. Body of Jesus is given for you. And uh, um, then take the juice. And then the way that we'll do this is we'll keep the elements together and then we'll remain standing and we'll take it as family together. Um, if you are not a follower of Jesus at this time, I would encourage you, instead of coming to the table, come to Jesus. Give your life to him then come to the table. Uh, if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus and you just feel really convicted by maybe a relationship that's really broken that you feel like you need to, to, to maybe abstain from taking communion today to, to see that relationship made right, um, that is the only warnings in Scripture about taking communion is towards not rushing to the table without first spending some time with Jesus, letting us search, search us, and then it's okay if it's like, you know what, I'll take communion next week. I got some business to do. And that is honoring to him. Uh, but let's spend some time seeking him, and then, and then let's come, we'll take the elements again, and then we'll remain standing and we'll take it together as family.